Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. I truly believe that thoughts are the greatest vehicle to change. We do not care whether the cat is black or white, as long as it can catch mice. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. To those waiting with bated breath for that favorite media catchphrase, the U-turn, I have only one thing to say. U-turn if you want to. The ladies not for turning. When health is absent, wisdom cannot reveal itself. Art cannot manifest. Strength cannot fight. Wealth becomes useless, and intelligence cannot be applied, is a quote from Herophilus, the Alexandrian physician often called the father of anatomy. I thought this was an appropriate quote for our discussion today, as our guest heads an organisation with a purpose centred on better health, to help their members make more informed healthcare decisions and live healthier lives. Our guest today is Mark Fitzgibbon. Chief Executive Officer and Managing Director of NIB Holdings Limited. Mark has been CEO of the group for over 18 years and led us demutualization and listing on the ASX in 2007. Today, the NIB Group is one of Australia's largest health insurers. Mark is also a Director of Private Healthcare Australia and has previously served as CEO of both the National and New South Wales Peak Industry Bodies for Licensed Clubs as well as holding several CEO positions in local government. Hello and welcome to another episode of No Limitations, a show where we speak to elite world-class performing men and women and unlock the secrets and influences that have shaped their destinies and that you could apply to your own life. I am your host, Greg Robinson, Managing Partner of Blenheim Partners, the number one research-led executive search and board advisory firm. In this episode, Mark shares with us his journey that has seen him become one of the longest-serving CEOs in Australia in one of the most complex and important sectors, healthcare. Always at the forefront of the debate, in this conversation, Mark presents healthcare in a new light against a backdrop of historical perceptions, sharing with us a glimpse of the new world as we stand on the precipice of some of the most exciting changes the industry and the nation are about to see. So sit back and enjoy Never Get Comfortable. Mark, welcome to the show. Pleased to be here. Mark, what's the best part of growing up and living in the Hunter region? Uh, well, the Hunter's a big place. I grew up in one part of it called Cessnock. Mm-hmm. Mind you, I left home when I was 21, but my childhood was certainly in Cessnock. And, uh, you know, it was a, it's a good place to grow up. It's urban, but you're in the bush, so, you know, you learn to do things that uh, you do in the bush, like ride, ride motorbikes and horses and camp out, and, out, out in the bush. Something I think which is an important part of growing up, and it's also very much a footy town, so play footy and do all the things that um, you know, young boys do. Any good as a footballer? Oh, I went all right. I you know, played first grade for Cessnock and played lower grades for Cronulla. 
back in the early 80s. But no, I lacked, probably lacked size as well as ability. Fair enough. But I love the game. I still love the game. Stepping stones in career. Well, I went to uni from school uh, full time and then all my buddies were working in coal mines and making lots of money, uh, having cars and whatnot. So I thought, well, I'm not sure about full time uni. So I sought for a job and I got a job with the largest corporation in Cestonk, which happened to be the council. And over the course of the next 17 years, I worked for seven different councils, led three of them, uh, including some big ones in Sydney, uh, like uh, Bankstown. And, uh, you know, it was a good good grounding for my uh, later uh, career. Councils, although they're often much maligned, you know, they're very diverse and complex uh, businesses. You know, you, you lead town planners and people who pick up waste and people who maintain parks and gardens through the sophisticated engineering. So it's it's complex and interesting in terms of its diversity. And it's also, they're generally very politically charged, which I think is an important uh, you know, part of our um, executive uh, development because you never escape politics. And then how did you make the move from a career in the council to NIB? Well, I was still a young man. Uh, you know, I was running Bankstown Council, which, you know, employed a couple of thousand people at the age of 32 or 33, I think it was. And okay. I just felt time for a change. And it wasn't, it was never going to be easy for somebody who came from running councils to enter the uh, uh, corporate world. And um, you know, frankly, I got in touch with a, a headhunter at the time who, who subsequently became my agent and said, well, Mark, you're not going to be running BHP Billiton anytime soon, but we'll <laughs> find a role for you, which starts that transition yeah, okay. and and uh, he did and so I ran an industry association you know the national state and national club industry which seemed a bit strange but again it, it was a time of reform like my reputation local government had been as a, a young Turk a, a, a reformist so I saw that as an opportunity and spent four years there through the Olympics and you know we're a major sponsor of the Olympics um, uh, again a highly political uh, environment essentially I was a lobbyist and then the opportunity, the same, um, the same search firm put me into uh, NIB way back in 2002. So, yeah, it was a bit of a clunky uh, transition, but a fascinating one and one that has served me well uh, since. Well, what's the lessons you learn, Mark, when you're dealing with people who are maybe been long-serving in councils or organisations who aren't necessarily willing to make the move and the young Turk comes through with the new ideas? Because that's a battle and a half, isn't it? Well, I think education uh, is a key. So not soon after finishing um, you know, my local government qualifications, I did an MBA at a time when I was still emerging as a, as a ticket to ride, so to speak. I think I finished my MBA back at UTS in the early 80s. I then started a PhD, and uh, although I wasn't able to finish PhD for all sorts of personal reasons, I, you know, I finished my Master's of Arts, so you know, I had a double Master's. And I think education is really important. Mm-hmm. And I'm always encouraging people I mentor and you know, our younger uh, executives. I'm a big supporter of educational policies within the corporation uh, to continue to learn. I think lifetime learning is important. So that's been important. Yeah. Um, I guess just in pure ambition, Greg. Yeah. You know, you've got to be ambitious to say, well, look, I'm I'm not happy with where I'm at. You know, I, I want more. No, not in an egotistical way, but that's just who I and you know many others are. You have to be curious and uh, and ambition. And I suppose networks. Yeah, right. You know, as I mentioned, uh, that particular search firm at the time became like an agent, um, like a player's agent involves a footballer. 
you can't wait for opportunities to come to you. You've got to go after um, uh, those kind of opportunities. You made the move to NIB. You're still fairly young, building your career. What did you actually inherit, Mark? And also, the second part, coming on board at a senior level, what did you promise the board you're going to deliver? Well, part of the attraction to NIB was I was it was a Newcastle-based um, organisation company, and you know I, you know I liked the idea of returning to Newcastle. NIB or Newcastle Industrial Benefits, um, that's the acronym. Had you know had been a remarkably successful business over 50, 60 years. It um, had its um, genesis in deep in the bowels of BHP, like many health funds or health insurers um, did. They were trade-based or professional-based. Um, you know, organisations back then. So, you know, the, the the guys who came before me had done a terrific job, but certainly I quickly saw an opportunity um, in the marketplace for you know, NIB to extend its reach beyond Hunter mm-hmm. uh, and become a national brand and, who knows, an international brand as we are today. Uh, you know, we're the second largest uh, health insurer in New Zealand, for example. Yeah, right. Yeah, I sensed an opportunity um, very early on and assembled a a highly capable team uh, around me. We just we just went after it. We had no real ambitions at the time to demutualise and list the company. You know that came uh, later. We simply had part of our mantra was world domination. We just simply had ambitions to grow the business as as, as best we can. But was that ambition already in there, Mark, or did you instill it? Oh, look, I'd like to think um, I, I instilled it. I think okay. it was a very conservative organisation yeah. uh, back at the time. Like women, for example, weren't allowed to, to wear slacks. There wasn't a woman in Kui right. in the management ranks or, or the board ranks. Uh, and that's just one dimension. But it was a very conservative organisation. Like the executive team went to lunch every Friday at a particular restaurant in, in Newcastle. In fact, the owner of that rest restaurant fronted me um, six months later to find out what he'd done wrong and why wasn't I going to his restaurant any, every Friday uh, anymore. So it was a conservative organisation. It had done very well, but had got comfortable and was probably resting on its laurels. And you know, part of our culture is you never get comfortable. So, yeah, we're, we're very ambitious and we, um, you know, we aggressively went after the market. I think the industry, the industry had been rescued by, you know, the Howard government back in 96 and had Australian participation in health insurance had dropped to as low as 30%. Now, back before it got Whitlam, it was 75%. So the industry was uh, nosediving and the Howard government reforms, um, you know, lifted participation back towards something like 45%. We, we thought the industry had kind of gone to sleep on the back of that uh, support. We did some um, numbers um, which suggested that the lifetime value of a new customer you know, a new policyholder was much higher than the cost of acquiring a new customer. And so with that insight, we invested heavily uh, in organic growth. And there was a period, I think the industry in 2003 collectively spent about $30 million on marketing acquisition. We spent that on our own in 2004, 2005. And we did very well. We really stimulated uh, growth uh, in the industry. Um and so that got it started. Started that was you know in the mid mid noughties. So doing our homework, preparing our minds, taking calculated risk, and investing uh, in that opportunity was, I suppose, the the cornerstone of what really got us moving. And what was your take on the industry? Was it a um, slow customers will come to us mentality? Was it just too relaxed? Pretty much. Uh, yeah, it was. It was. It was a not for profit sector. 
you know, the largest, easily the largest health insurer in the market was a government department, as, you know, Medibank was back then. It's a very different beast today, of course. So, yeah, there was a level in my mind, you know, there was a strong member ethos for sure, but, you know, it was very comfortable. And, and you know, I, I can recall when we started, Greg, I can recall when we started investing and advertising heavily around the state, two CEOs calling me wondering what on earth I was doing marketing in their turf, yeah, so right. to speak. So you had the, the, there was that sense as well. So, you know, we, we shook things up a bit. And on the organic growth in your, in your model, if I sign up as a 16, 17, 18, 19, 21-year-old, have you got me for life? Oh, look, it depends. You know, the average um, persistence or longevity of a policyholder is about seven or eight years. And, you know, that varies. If some people who have been with NIB for 70 years and, yep. you know, there are others who have been here and left in less than one year. Change agenda. Massive change agenda ahead of you, taking it from a mutual to a listed organisation. What's the story behind that and what's the learnings behind it? Well, I, we very early bought into a, a, a philosophy. It sounds a bit cheesy, I'm sorry, but a philosophy that the status quo is death. If you, if you just do the same thing week in, uh, week out, year in, year out, um, the market, you'll eventually be selected out uh, in the marketplace. And, you know, we, we, we have a theory that there's – Again, without getting too academic, I think one of the really interesting debates in management theory is do companies do well because of uh, strategic choice? The strategic choice field would say, look, companies do very well who predict the future and set their sales on that future and execute perfectly. Or do they, over the course of time, do well because of more a more deterministic view of the world that, look, they do a lot of, they make good judgments, but basically the reason they succeed is they adapt to whatever uh, market conditions and circumstances uh, uh, emerge. We're very much in that later ladder, which is not to say we don't do our research, not to say we don't do a lot of strategic planning, but in our, our strategic plans is more like a roulette wheel. We don't place all our bets on one particular future scenario and, and process. So right from the very beginning, um, as we've looked at the business, we've thought, well, look, we need to experiment. And look, some of those experiments, some of those mutations, if you like, won't work, they'll be selected out, but some will. And if we're clever, we'll recognise those mutations that do well in this adaptive, deterministic world and amplify those uh, investments and be sufficiently disciplined to cut off those, those experiments, those investments that, um, that haven't worked. So if you think about our core business, our Australian residence health insurance business, even within that business, we've experimented widely. You know, we made that big investment in organic growth. We brought to we kind of pioneered this idea that you could custom build your level of health insurance cover. You could decide to self-insure for certain things or rely on, on Medicare. So we provide consumers with a level of choice. And again, you know, we had um, experienced operative in the in the business accusing us of selling us pretend insurance, but we'll say no, we're just giving people a choice. And of course now all the insurers offer choice today. We were the ones who, when the aggregators arrived to town, like the ISELEX of the world that compare the markets, most of our competitors said, oh, look, don't go near them. You heard what happened in the UK. They'll steal your profits. We said, well, look, this is where consumers want, want to shop. We have to be there. We have to be on the train or under it, as I, I used to say. It was successful. We started the white label. People said, well, look, you know, if you start white labeling for Qantas or Suncorp, they'll eat your lunch at the end of the day. Well, we thought, again, we thought, no, this is this is a capability we can build. 
and it'll be successful for us. So within our within our core business, we've always been uh, experimenting and trying new things. Some haven't worked. And outside our core business, you know, we have a track record of, again, experimenting. You know, we entered the market for international students and the market for international workers. We went to New Zealand. Um, you know, we have a joint venture in China. We now have a travel insurance business. Now, most of those, thankfully, have been successful experiments, but an experiment by definition isn't an experiment if, if you guarantee success. And we've had our failures. We had a medical cosmetic travel business, which didn't go well. Right. You know, we were selling um, DNA tests there at one point back in the late noughties. A bit of a question mark about our investment in travel insurance uh, at the moment. So, you know, philosophically, we've been, um, you know, we've been very deliberately pursuing innovation, experimentation in a disciplined way. And and I make that point a disciplined way, you know, the because there are certain principles we apply for that. Firstly, there has to be a level of what we call relatedness to our core business. In other words, it's an economies of scope argument. We won't go after business unless we can demonstrate we have certain capabilities and skills which lend themselves to this opportunity. So we won't buy a you know uranium mine, for, for example. The opportunity has to be big enough to warrant our intention. We call it pollen on the bum. Pollen on the bum. Well, it's based upon a you know an anecdote that the way bees operate. So the, each state of reconnaissance bees go out in the field, and those which yep. come back to the chief bees back in the hive with the most, they do a little dance, and those which have the most pollen coming off their bum, the chief voice bees say, "These are the guys we have to follow uh, uh, tomorrow." Makes sense. We always, before we make a move on any innovation, we do a lot of research. Um, you know, borrowing you know we borrowing Louis Pasteur's famous line about fortune favours a prepared mind. We talk about prepared minds. Like if I say to one of our managers, what's our prepared minds on this? You know, I expect, you know, a detailed analysis of the opportunity. And most importantly, fourthly, the innovation experiment, it's always a small bet. You know, you don't bet the farm on something new. You know, the deer doesn't suddenly grow a fifth leg to escape the faster cheetah. You know, we mutate uh, our way um, uh, with these experiments. So, you know, if... HCF came on the market tomorrow and wanted the wanted us to pay three billion dollars. Would go to the market, raise the capital, and buy because it's just more of the same. It's core, but with a with a more novel opportunity, you know, we would never invest. You know, maybe more than a hundred million dollars, as we've demonstrated, you know, over the years. Is there a DNA there that we're all in this together because we're based in Newcastle, up against the big smoke? No, no, no. All of our board today uh, reside in um, metropolitan Sydney. Yeah, but I'm winding it back when you started setting the targets and bringing that innovation through. Oh, Greg, I'd, I'd like to say there's a Newcastle. Maybe there is some Newcastle, some subconscious Newcastle thing to it. But I, I think the culture uh, that I'm describing isn't Newcastle yeah. uh, specific. And, uh, you know, we don't think, although we love our local footy, yeah. And, you know, we're a major sponsor of the Newcastle Knight. Equally, we're a major sponsor of the Geelong Cats and the Auckland Blues in New Zealand. So we don't think, as much as we love Newcastle, we don't think through the <laughs> prism of Newcastle anymore. Fair enough. And I don't think we did when I started. Like, you know, okay. my first motivation was, you know, how do we create a national brand? Uh, you know, not how do we grow our market share in Newcastle. In fact, you know, I sold off, or we sold off, a, you know, a hospital which we just built on the basis that, look, you know, it's a form of fairly integration, which may work in Hunter, but unless we're prepared to have a hospital in every market, it just doesn't, it's not scalable. It doesn't yeah. make sense strategically. 
The move to float, Mark. The move to float. I'm not sure how much I can say. Well, look, I'll share this story. We, we, we were almost acquired back in. Oh, okay. Back in the mid-noughties. It didn't happen. And uh, we were a bit disappointed because we, we saw it as a real opportunity uh, for the business. You know, we're still only small, only 5% of the total marketplace. And with the with the failure of that merger through through no fault of our own, we, we sat around the board table and I think I think I said to the board, somebody said, well, what do we do now, Mark? I said, I don't know, we could float it, expecting they'd all go, oh, no, that's all too hard. And they were all excited about the prospect, so we floated it. It was that simple. And, you know, the, the, key, the core rationale uh, behind that decision, you know, it wasn't just for the fun of it, although that's always part of it, was that, you know, it allow us to raise the capital that yep. we thought we'd need to, to raise to drive industry consolidation, M&A. Now, you know, it didn't quite play out that way in the end, and maybe we'll come to that a bit further on, but that was the, that was the principal reason. So what is NIB today, Mark? We're trying to be more a healthcare company with, with the mission in life above and beyond financial protection uh, uh, for people. So you think about, if you think about most healthcare systems, be they public or private, really, we call them healthcare systems, but they're sick care systems. You know, they respond for us and, and, and consumers once we're already sick or, sick or injured. Uh, the future in our reckoning uh, is very much that while protecting people once they're already sick and providing them access to the best doctors and hospitals, et cetera, will always remain important. Uh, the future will become more and more about our ability in helping you stay healthy in the first place, helping you, helping you and, and, and your doctors. And um, what's allowing us to aspire to that kind of vision for the company is the amazing advances we're seeing in um, data science, you know, big data, um, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, uh, IAT. So that increasingly with uncanny uh, precision, we can say, look, if Greg has characteristics, biological, psychological, physical, socially, uh, uh, et cetera, we can, by comparing your profile uh, with algorithms written from literally billions of people, say with some precision that Greg, because he has characteristics A, B, C, D, and E, is at risk of diseases one, two, three, four, five specifically. And if so, the best way to prevent or manage or treat those diseases is, is X, Y, Z. So this is the future. And, um, you know, given this thesis, we're keen to be as important to our, our members in helping them and their doctors understand their individual risk profile. And with that, providing with a range of, you know, goods and, and, and services and support mechanisms, which help them, as I say, mitigate uh, the, that risk of disease. And of course, COVID-19 um, has, you know, taken this to another level. You know, people are much more um, aware of the risks associated with disease, be they communicable or non-communicable. And so it's fitting nicely. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, nobody's celebrating the the suffering and tragedy and misery of, uh, of COVID-19, but it is really uh, making more poignant this challenge, you know, we face as, as healthcare businesses to prevent and manage rather than just treat uh, disease and uh, uh, injury. So it's a very exciting uh, future. And our mission, we simplified um, you know, two years ago now, well before COVID-19, our mission is your better health uh, as a member. And there's no better example of the progress we're making than the JV we, we uh, formed and announced last year with um, you know, the global 
a US-based healthcare company, uh, Cigna. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Has it worked out well? Well, it's early days, but it's working out uh, uh, well. You know, Cigna are bringing IP and IT uh, to us uh, through the joint venture, uh, which will, you know, enable us to create the type of value proposition I've described, a value proposition which is about giving you a very sophisticated uh, electronic health record and risk profile, the innovation that will allow us to hook you up uh, seamlessly in this digital world with providers of, you know, disease prevention and management, not just of, of, of sickness. Um, you know, the platform which will enable you to connect um, virtually yep. with your uh, providers. You know, I think it'll look, it'll seem very strange to our grandkids and great-grandkids, maybe just our grandkids, that once upon a time when we were really sick, we saw a doctor in person, you know, given the risk of cross-infection, given the risk associated with sitting in a waiting room with a bunch of uh, 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 sick people. So, you know, where, you know, so much of our thinking is about how can we make this experience um, this connectivity with the healthcare system for our for our members more 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 digital, uh, less physical, and of course there's a there's a huge democratisation mm. um, opportunity around that as well. Being able to bring you know the same level of support and service to somebody living in Burke yeah. um, as somebody living in you know Manly. So how far away are we from reaching anywhere near that in those goals you just out, you just outlined? Not as far as you may think. So what's the roadblocks too? Well, the, the major major roadblock is that most of the spending in healthcare, like we spend in Australia $200 billion a year in our healthcare. Mm-hmm. Now, about 70% of that is controlled by government. And, um, you know, I'm not here to bag government. You know, I was operating government for 17 years of my life. But there's certainly not the the spirit of innovation and risk-taking that's necessary to create this this kind of world. So I fear while ever the public sector dominates any market, you know, you're not going to see the progress uh, you might otherwise see. So inevitably, and there's a lot of forces driving this, this shift in any case, but inevitably we have to shift more responsibility for our healthcare system to the private sector and private um, settings. And, but, but that's probably... Uh, a bigger debate. Uh, get, getting back to your question, um, we're working on. So think of the value proposition. We're, we're, we're working on a creating a health electronic record for you, a better one than what you'll get off from government uh, at the moment, which is unfortunately not very user friendly and, 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 and clunky. And um, we're working on the algorithms. M- many of these algorithms have already already been written in places like the USA and they simply need to be uh, localised um, because there'll be differences associated with epidemiology and all climate and all sorts of factors which make you know your profile may be different to somebody who looks like you who lives in Minnesota. Um, so that works well advanced. We're already operating programs which is much about prevention and management um, around mental health and uh, hospital discharge. So the largest program Honeysuckle Health, I should have mentioned, is the new joint venture entity. That's its name. We're we're already delivering programs to uh, members who, once they've left hospital, uh, to manage them to avoid the risk of re-hospitalisation. About 7 8% of people who go to hospital end up being readmitted for all sorts of reasons. They forgot to take their pill or infection. So we're managing those we see as most at risk based upon the algorithms and data. The infrastructure, the insight... The support 
mechanisms like the nurses who ring you when you're getting out of hospital are already in place. Um, and really, it's about you know how we scale that up from here. Honeysuckle Health is a new company. We're 50-50 with Cigna. Have NIB as its um, first client, its inaugural client, and anchor client. But its its charter is to pursue the similar type of relationships and arrangements with other health insurers and indeed public sector um, organisations. So the model you're aspiring to, Mark, is there anyone in the world who's got, well, I guess, which parts of the world do you think are leading the way? That's that's what we should work from. Yeah, there's several. Probably, you know, probably Cigna don't like this analogy because they're fierce competitors in the US market, but probably the best example is United Healthcare. Okay. So United Healthcare, for those listeners who aren't familiar with the company, are America's largest healthcare you know, company uh, insurer. They're you know three hundred billion dollar uh, company. They created a sister company called Optum. Yeah, right. Yeah, probably a decade or so ago now. And Optum provides the kind of services that I've described to you know numerous other American insurers and government uh, uh, programs. And Cigna are trying to do um, the same thing through. They announced last year. They bought a large pharmacy business called Express Scripts, which and they've just rebranded that business um, Ever Ever North. So, um, you know, that's a, that's another uh, comparison. Most health insurers try and do this within their existing company walls. And the problem with that is you don't; these things need scale. Mm. You know, they need data from, as I mentioned, billions of records. Yep. They need scale to spread the cost of the investment and get the return of investment uh, you need. And we we have a, a well-established philosophy in the business, Greg, that the only form of long-term competitive advantage is constant short-term uh, advantage. So, okay. you know, we're out of the box already with this kind of thinking. To the extent that we share that capability with other insurers in the future, well, good luck to them. They have to catch us now. And in any case, if we didn't share it, somebody else you know, we'll enter the market and provide this kind of capability. You know, it might be United and Optum, uh, for example. Big gorilla in the room is the government as you're talking about, so maybe we should tackle that a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts regarding government's role in health? What's your thoughts on Medicare? And if you had the magic wand, what would you change? Well, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting debate. Australia's been a little bit um, falling between two stools on, on, on this policy issue for, you know, really since World War II. So, you know, in, in the trade, we talk about a spectrum. At one end of the spectrum, you have a, a, a single funder monopoly system uh, like the NHS is in Britain. You know, yep. it's called in the trade the, a beverage system named after Lord Beveridge, who's uh, credited with starting the NHS in England. At the other end of the spectrum, you have what we call managed competition or a Bismarckian system, <laughs> Otto von, von Bismarck, which is more, more a place where government stays out of the marketplace, it regulates, but allows you know, companies to form, compete for um, uh, in, insurers, and um, you know, government doesn't get involved beyond redistributing income, so nobody gets left behind and... Um, and, and, and regulation. We've never been quite sure whether we want to be an NHS or managed comp competition model. And so it's ebbed and flowed depending upon whether it's been a Labor or Liberal government. So, you know, Gough Whitlam took us down the road of, you know, uh, a beverage NHS type system. Fraser and others tried to bring us back. Bob Hawke then, you know, reinstituted Medicare, Medibank as it was That's right, uh, back yeah. then. So we've seen this ebb and flow. And it's it's been unfortunate. 
uh, I, I think. But of a population of our size, which way should we go? Well, we should be gleaning more. A government's role in healthcare, as I think in any market, like, well, what is the role of government? It's correct market failure. There are forms of market failure in um, uh, the healthcare market, such as information asymmetries, the, you know, the disadvantaged consumers typically have with, with the sellers of healthcare products, and but redistribute wealth or ensure nobody gets left behind. And I think the model we need to aspire to, and, and people that so many people detest comparisons with the USA, but one thing they've got right with, with Obamacare is to outsource the delivery of publicly funded programs to the private sector. So just by way of explanation, there are two large social insurance programs in the USA. One is Medicare, which is just for the oldies. Now you can now, so 60, I'll say this with with respect because I'm almost, I'm 62 this year. They're well experienced in society. You can either buy the traditional Medibank care, the Medicare product from government, or you can opt out of Medicare and buy a private sector. Uh, product. And uh, almost half of Americans now have opted out of the default government Medicare product and bought private sector products because they're better. The other program is for basically people of lower socioeconomic status. Uh, That's called Medicaid. And really, really the big move with Obamacare and the ACA, Obama put hundreds and hundreds of millions more, uh, in, well, billions more into Medicare, Medicaid by lifting the threshold, the qualification. And they got another 50 million uh, Americans insured under Medicaid. But that also imposed, Medicaid is actually a state-operated um, healthcare system and it imposed additional obligations on the state who didn't have the money. Yeah. So the way it played out is, you know, clever private sector operators went to the government of, say, Tennessee and said, hey, listen, Gov, your Medicaid population last year cost you $10 billion. Next year, we our actuaries are confident they're going to cost you $12 billion, maybe more. Write us a check tomorrow for $10 billion, what you spent last year. Take yourself off risk. Set the performance outcomes for this population and we'll operate it for you. And Medicaid has been a made a wonderful success in the USA. So you still have government setting the policy and insisting upon the outcomes and, and and funding it, but now they're off risk and the private sector is actually you know, delivering it. It's been outsourced. Okay. Um, but I think there's only two states now in the USA who haven't gone to the private sector to deliver their health care. So, you know, I dream of a future where government sees its role as regulation, funding um, health care to the extent that it's necessary to ensure uh, people don't, nobody gets left behind. So there's still universal coverage, you know, government insists upon that, but allows the private sector to provide the, the products and, and products which just aren't about financial protection and access to sickness uh, services, but also products which are about actively helping you understand your risk profile, manage that risk profile, and hopefully prevent the risk of disease. And then look, there you know there are a couple of other imperatives um, uh, behind this. The main one being, you know, government outlays in healthcare. You know, we could beat up for putting up premiums three percent, but government outlays in healthcare are, are consistently increasing at six to seven percent per annum, okay. and we have less taxpayers to pick up that bill. Like Greg, in in 1973, when Gough Whitlam launched Medibank, as it was then known, there was over ten working, tax-paying Australians for every one retired, read sicker Australian. Yep. Today there's about five and a bit. By 2050, there's three and a bit. So wow. you literally run out of taxpayers to sustain 
uh, uh, the current model. Inevitably, you have to look for solutions. Well, look, how can we lower the level of utilization growth through, re- being, through being better at prevention and management? And how can we become more efficient by turning to the private sector to innovate and automate and digitize um, the entire system? Well, what about uh, in different parts of the world too, Mark, where if I uh, join a, a new company, get a new role, I get signed up or it's given to me as part of my package uh, for myself or family, medical benefits, insurance, et cetera. It's not 101 here in Australia. It is in some some organisations, but it's nowhere near as prevalent as it is in other parts of the world. Is that, a, is that also something we should encourage or, or not? Well, well, possibly. Look, most of those differences are historic. So the reason the USA have a high, such a high incident of employer provided health insurance is because during World War II, there was a wage freeze. So, that, you know, fringe benefits became a way of attracting, you know, a, a scarce uh, workforce. Yep. Um, you know, in New Zealand, about 50% of the market is sold through employees just because of their uh, tradition. Here, it's only about 15%. Uh, We've mainly been a direct-to-consumer uh, business. Um, that said, there is an opportunity there in Australia. We're certainly... Um, see that uh, opportunity. We acquired a business you know, a few years ago to amplify that particular channel um, and it's done uh, uh, especially well. You know, we think working with an employer creates a, a you know, greater opportunity for us to more holistically mm-hmm. uh, you know, help our members you know, manage uh, their, their health care because there's another you know, influencer in there, that is the employer to with the motives to improve health and um, uh, well-being. So we like that market. You know, it's interesting. In the USA, though, that what, what they call the commercial market, about 80% of that commercial market is now self-insured. Oh, is that right? Yeah, because the okay. costs were, you know, starting to get out of control. Yeah. So what the health insurers have had to do, and this is consistent with the investment we're making in honeysuckle health, is, you know, they, they perform all the administration without taking the underwriting risk. So they still design the products, provide the service, pay the claims, you know, negotiate the contracts with the provider of preventative and, and, and treatment uh, uh, services. So, you know, there are very you know, many different models uh, around the world. And even within that channel of employer-led uh, healthcare, you know, approaches do vary. So how long is it going to take the government to change their mind? And who's going to, who's going to stimulate that? Because it's been going, like you say, it's been ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows, ebbs and flows, and have we really advanced the discussion? Yeah, well, look, any time I and others put my head up around some of this kind of thinking, um, there's a tendency to want to knock it off and suggest that, you know, what Mark's really suggesting is, you know, we kill off Medicare, which is not what I'm saying. You know, I'm a Cessnock lad. Nobody believes I grew up in a Labor household, although some would argue I'm, you know, probably right of Genghis Khan today, but I believe in universal health care. I absolutely believe that nobody should be left left behind, as unfortunately about 40 million people in the USA uh, still are. Yep. Still are. The, the problem with the USA system is largely around cost and equity. Yep. Um, so we believe in universal health. All I'm on about is um, you know, how we deliver uh, that outcome for everybody and how we make that, that outcome as good for somebody living in Bellevue Hill or Turak as it is for somebody living in Burke or, or Mildura. Yep. So um, we need to convince government that we can do it better, uh, you know, just as the operators in the USA have with, with, with Medicaid. So that's going to require a level of piloting 
and experimentation. Okay. We need government to believe that the status quo simply isn't sustainable because of the growing dependency ratio of old uh, uh, at young and the, and, and the need for some level of fiscal um, rectitude, particularly in the aftermath of the COVID-19 spending. We need to develop trust and relationships with the policymakers. There's an argument to say that only Labor has the license, the social license and the, and the trust to make serious changes to our healthcare system. And there's an element of truth to that, just like, you know, only Nixon could go to China uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, thinking. And so I'm working, uh, you know, on, on the Labor side mm. as best I can. But equally, um, both sides need to be convinced. And so, you know, for, for someone like Greg Hunt to lead this kind of thinking, A, he's got to feel as though he, He's just not going to be, there is going to be an element of bipartisanship uh, about it and it's a safe territory. Firstly, he has to believe it himself. So, you know, um, know, sowing these ideas um, with policymakers is is part of my, part of my, my agenda, but probably more so you've got to, you've you've got to show how you're actually uh, doing it. So we have some ideas in the business that we're working on at the moment to, to demonstrate that, you know, we could actually wrap our arms around a specific population, yes. maybe a regional uh, community. Yep. And through the science, in a way I've described, through the predictive powers of um, of data science and the, uh, you know, new products and services we we have to offer that we can actually improve health outcomes in that that, that community in a way which wouldn't otherwise be achieved. Why wouldn't the Libs come on board with this? I understand you say you're going to go down and you're working closely with Labor and you're having the chat that on the verse side, you're having the chat with Mr. Hunt. But surely it's got to make sense that both sides of the political divide have got to come together. Your argument's just logic, isn't it? Well, it is, but... <laughs> I don't know logic. when we talk politics. What's right? logic got to do with it? <laughs> Look, healthcare policy has long been the domain uh, of... Of the left of, of of Labor, and you know, any time a conservative, you know, liberal government has put their head up with, I'm, I'm not saying, um, and particularly, you know, the current minister Greg Hunter, who I believe has been fantastic. I'm not saying they haven't driven some important reforms in healthcare, but the kind of systemic change I'm talking about mm. is major outsourcing, if you like, you know, even that word, outsourcing, well, it's two words, even those two words scare uh, people. They're on a hiding to nothing unless they believe there's some acquiescence and acceptance uh, on the other side that, look, it's it's worth at least an experiment for, or a pilot of some, of some kind. If you achieve these efficiencies and we get to the next level, obviously, then you're people having a better understanding of their own health. Am I premiums going to come down? No. No. So in Australia, we have this principle of community rating, which means that irrespective of your age or health status, you pay the same premium. So if you're if you're 75 with all sorts of um, issues, you'll pay the same premiums as if you're 25 and fit and healthy. Do you understand that? If I'm a 25-year-old or 21-year-old, 22-year-old, I'm super fit, I might be asking the kids, why are you stinging me? I'm not at the end of my... At the end of my active life i'm at the beginning of it and you're charging me the same the same bill why are you doing that that's that's a real issue yeah and it is for the young people they must be you know because we're losing young people on, on insurance are we yeah and 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 one of these systems which 
which create that parity across all funds is a this curious system we call risk equalization where basically the young subsidize the uh, old inter fund and because we have such a young population because we've been so successful in attracting younger people um, we're a big contributor uh, to that pool so look it, it is a tax on young people um, which is causing them to bail out yep. un- unfortunately yep. and we need to uh, redress that and that's a policy change on um, prosecuting uh, very hard at the moment so 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 watch this space but I think more importantly Greg, we have to shift the value proposition. The value proposition for my kids, and I've got four millennials, mm-hmm. is it's got to expand beyond this notion that if I get sick, I need NIB. Like that's important, but the reality of it is they think, well, yeah, but if I get sick, I'm probably not going to get sick because I'm young and healthy and I've got Medicare to fall back on. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, we've got to change the value proposition to, look, if I join NIB, yep. They're there for me if I get sick, but more importantly, they're there providing with the deep insight uh, and risk profile and goods and services which I need to make my stay healthy, to identify risk, prevent or manage that risk and, and, and stay healthy, and are providing with the kind of content which improves my health literacy, which is relevant to me. So our big agenda at the moment, which we call from pay to, to partner or P2P yep. is to change up the value proposition uh, uh, completely. So it's not just about your sickness. It is about your health and it's relevant to you because it's about you, the individual relying on the data science uh, that we're bringing. So, you know, value is the two part of equ- equations about cost, which everyone's very focused upon, of course, yes. but it's also about what you get out out of it. Like nobody would complain about the cost of their health insurance premium if it included first class around the world ticket each year and free tickets to the Knights and Tigers and Blues games, etc. So we've got to create more value for younger people in particular. Yeah, you mentioned the word trust earlier. Someone for a young person, uh, do I even understand my insurance policy? The word, you, know, you open up an insurance policy, it's pretty complex. And then I actually think, okay, I, you know, I'm crook. I've got to go and see the doctor and I find out in subsection three, paragraph A, whatever it's going to be, I don't tick the box. I thought I did. It's not, it's not that easy. Now, is there a need, to, is there a need for far more education in, in that space? Short answer is yes. And so at the, the, the sales process, yes. And I'm just looking at my phone now because I think it is easy. Yeah, do you? Okay. Well, look, if I go onto my fact sheet, all online, it's all there. What I'm covered for, what I'm not covered for. And kids, yeah, this is this is the way <laughs> the new generations uh, are learning everything these days. So, um, look, people will say, you know, I didn't see the small print. It's hard for me to understand what I'm covered for. And I, and I can, you know, it's, it's a paradox of choice. When I started in the business, it was all vanilla. Great. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. And I mentioned this earlier. We made a very deliberate decision to create different levels of cover to shoot consumer needs for okay. them to assess. But by definition, that's with that choice, it's brought a level of uh, complex complexity. And so, of course, we need to be as good as we possibly can in explaining uh, cover at the sales point or at any point of inquiry and provide putting the information into the hands. Of, of, of our members. So I can, within that 30 seconds it took me then, get very, very clear about ticks and crosses, what's included and what's not included. Mark, what did, what did COVID really bring to you 
And what did it bring to the Australian thinking about their health and their life? It certainly brought an elevated uh, level of um, awareness about the risk of disease and the, the need to prevent and, and as far as possible uh, uh, manage uh, disease. And we're seeing that in our sales and retention. You know, we've had, um, we've had a good run okay. uh, since the, uh, again, nobody's celebrating their misery and disruption of COVID-19, but we've had a good run with sales and retention. But is that good compared to industry, Mark, or is that good for NIB? Industry's done a little bit better, and okay. you know we've done a little bit better than than the industry. But that's that's just typical. Without wanting to sound like a wanker, uh, <laughs> you know we have been growing, you know, Above consistently industry. well ahead of industry for a long time. Mm-hmm. It certainly brought a greater emphasis on the kind of thinking that I've described: mm-hmm. the need to invest in understanding the risk of, of disease, particularly at an individual level, and and the most efficacious and cost-effective way of managing or preventing or treating uh, those risks. It's certainly going to bring, and we're only just starting to see it, but it will come with a rush, more digital engagement between yep. patients and doctors. How's that going? Well, I'll tell you that. We're looking at a few investments uh, uh, at, at the moment. There's certainly been an uptick in um, virtual consultations, telehealth, you know, and government has supported that by, by making that um, Medicare uh, uh, rebatable, but it will accelerate from here you know it's a bit of a long story i see i was actually in royal north shore hospital on monday getting tested for diverticulitis if anyone's ever had it it's kind of an infection in your stomach and it's rotten but i was saying to the doctor and he agreed completely at at 9 p.m on monday night that most of the diagnosis i received which included a ct constant blood and testing it will be done at home 10, 20 years from now because we'll have the the symptom checkers the iot devices the 5g uh, which makes that that yeah. possible. So we are going to see this this seminal shift away from where healthcare happens, and increasingly will happen in out increasingly happen in lower cost settings, including the home, because the technology uh, will allow that. So, you know, COVID nineteen is going to drive the confidence and investment in transition. Uh, and uh, the other great consequence, which you know is a more general interest um, to your listeners, is this fundamental shift in work practice and i use i say work practice mm. very deliberately because people think it's just about location it's not just about location although uh, uh that's important it's going in order to you know if we're, we're abandoning this tailorist 19th century notion that we have to have line of sights of our people to lead and manage them we still have to have other ways to set targets coach monitor progress uh, measure uh, our outputs. Um, we've already adopted a policy at NIB that uh, from here uh, we have a distributed workforce. Uh, the office is no longer the default uh, workforce. You you can work wherever you want to work. Uh, that's your choice, provided A, it's safe, and we'll be checking for risk, workplace health and safety risk, mm-hmm. uh, and providing, uh, including psychosocial uh, risks. So, mm-hmm. you know, for some people, they may not be able to work at home. So yeah. we need to provide a location for them yeah. and providing technology works. And really, we'll have, you only come into work for specific reasons, such as training, induction, scrums, uh, planning sessions, client meetings, although you can do that in a coffee shop in most cases uh, uh, these days. So that's our... That's our brand new operating philosophy, and we're putting much more stock in in, in platforms such as um, Workday, 
which allow us to still you know, have our workforce collaborate, communicate, you know, share ideas. People um, and, 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 and setting goals and performance uh, management. You don't think you're breaking down or is a chance of breaking down the culture by having people working from home? There's an argument that, you know, people come, they move further and further away. I know you've got your video screens and everything else you're connecting to. I can tend to become a little bit more selfish, et cetera. You know, there's all these different arguments. Uh, and also there's the other big argument, you know, we, we are social animals ultimately. And it's great to run, you know, rub shoulders with our, our colleagues. But, you know, over to you. What's your thoughts on that? Greg, I, I, I love this debate. I think it's one of the most uh, fascinating debates we've had in my uh, management career. Uh, there is that risk. Absolutely, isn't there? Because socialisation, camaraderie, bonding, collaboration is, is just so important. And people talk about the lost water cooler moments. Okay. Well, or the other one, what about I'm not going to win the grand final. If we all train, if we all train separately, then came together once once a week, am I? Yeah, no, but but that's different. It's like building a house. We're not going to build a house if we all stay home either. Um, you know, we're talking about office knowledge work, and if you know, if water cooler moments are so important, which I think they are, fine. Let's have a water cooler session every Monday for three hours from nine to twelve. Let's make that part of the way we roll. Um, so I'm not suggesting for a, a moment that we don't come together, uh, that we don't have locations for people to come together, and we will. We'll have five hubs at, at this stage, but that we come together for specific purposes. Yeah, right. Okay. That we don't just come together because we come together. This idea that somehow, you know, corralling people into an office on Level 18 in Government Macquarie Tower, nine to five for five days a week, that that drives camaraderie, and collaboration. Look, it may, it may, but it's, it's that's that, that's not that's not not guaranteed. And um, um, so, you know, our, our philosophy is let, let's be clear about when we need to come together and make that easy uh, and, and possible for people. Hey, but you know what? I could be wrong. Uh, that's right. It's really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it could. I, in five years' time, I could, as I often do, sit back and think, mm, okay. We didn't quite get that right, and may, maybe the answer somewhere in between. One of the other interesting thing, Greg, is we've you know we've done a lot of survey on this. Eighty eighty percent of our people like the idea, and I don't think it's because they're all slack, you know, wanting to slack off. In fact, our pro productivity is through the roof at the moment. I mentioned sales and retention, but that's true of you know our claims processing, our call times, uh, uh, etc. But there may be a Hawthorne effect associated with that, a certain level of of novelty. So, you know, let's wait and see. But what I was going to say, our survey um, told us that on average, all of our people spend five weeks a year on the journey to work, stuck in cars, trains, buses. Now, that's five weeks of productivity or five weeks of playing golf, if you like, you know, as part of your work life. Yeah, but don't you find when you sit in a room sometimes or what, okay, again, this is when you say you get together for your purpose. Let's think, let's talk about the success of NIB. Under your leadership, you've been innovating all the way through, haven't you? You're competitive all the way through. You've still got to create that. Now, can you create that that attitude, that feeling, that innovative? You know, if I'm looking at a Zoom, that's okay. But when I'm in the room and someone's bouncing ideas off me pretty quickly, or that's when the best comes out of people, I, I, I think. But if that's going to be when you get together for the particular purposes, is that is that what the? Oh, so so you have an innovation day once a month, a water cooler day once a month, and without worrying about oh, geez. 
I hope we're finishing soon because I've got to get to my next meeting or without having to worry about the phone call or this or that. So we do, we do need people to come together for all the reasons we, we, we understand. But let's build that into our, our mode of operation, our, our organisational design. Let's make that, you know, let's designate time and opportunity for, for people to do that. And the spontaneity um, will come with that. Mark, through the process of COVID-19, are there any social or work-related or employment-related issues that's come out of the whole, I guess, awareness of COVID and the impact? Yeah, I I think another one I can think of, uh, Greg, is I I think COVID-19 is going to be a real page turn in the history of urban uh, settlement. Like, technology is... Well, it's actually not even COVID-19. It's around about technology. Technology is what took the pommies around the world in modern sail ships and steamships. It's what drove uh, during the Industrial Revolution, our migration from rural settlements into urban settlements very rapidly in the scheme of things. It's what built our suburbs because of the motor car and took people out of downtown and high-rise areas. And while COVID-19 has been the catalyst, it's really technology which is which is driving this notion I've already described about distributed uh, working. And so we will see an increased proclivity amongst people to work in outside of metropolitan areas, basically, because now they have the technology and the means uh, to do so. And we're seeing that already in the uh, pattern of urban migration, quoting ABS data, which is showing a net migration out of Sydney and Melbourne. And, you know, I'm here in Newcastle at the moment, and I know all around the Hunter region, we're seeing a massive spike in home prices as people are escaping the cities because they can. So I think in, you know, in the fullness of time, when we look back at COVID-19 implications, net migration away from major uh, metropolitan areas uh, into regional areas is going to be one of the real, um, the real shifts. But are we going to see business actually step it up as well and move to, to the regions? Uh, absolutely. Um, you know, consistent with the kind of vision we have for the company, yeah. uh, people aren't going to be... Um, collecting themselves in large office spaces in, you know, Sydney and Melbourne. And look, and you've been a leader in the regions, Mark, but as a chief exec in the regions, is it much different to, to our city slickers being a, a CEO, you know, in getting one talent in the past and you see that changing going forward? Not anymore. Yeah, okay, right. Not, ne- no, not, not anymore. Like I work half Sydney, half Newcastle. So there's no difference for me, but there has been, and we've had to recruit out of Sydney and Newcastle. So half of my executive is in Sydney, well, almost half. We have Nick Freeman in Melbourne. Uh, we have another executive in Brisbane, uh, Melissa. But now that geographic separation has become even less important in this uh, new world of distributed working. So exciting days ahead. Yeah. Leadership style then. Now, is that changing then? Is the way you operate changing? Well, look, if you think about, the, well, you know, what are the fundamentals of leadership? H- having a very clear sense of purpose and vision for your company, I can communicate that at every opportunity. Uh, and in fact, I think, see, I, I, I do, I was only saying to my partner, Rebecca, last night, she said, what are you going to do about the town halls? Um, which is when I come together with bigger groups. I yep. said, I'm going to break it down. I'm going to have more town halls, but at more at a business unit level so right. I can get closer to to the, to the leaders um, uh, within those groups. So, you know, being able to, you know, having a very clear sense of uh, uh, 
purpose and being able to articulate that uh, with the people, uh, I don't see that being impaired. Getting the right people on the bus, you know, the Jim Collins is one, which is, you know, I still regard as, you know, you know one of the building blocks of any uh, any any success. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't change. Encouraging a spirit of uh, innovation and entrepreneurship, and now never allowing people to be comfortable with the status quo. Um, in a way I've described, will still be, um, you know, a, a, a driving that, um, only be more episodic and maybe more deliberate. So, and, oh, and the, one, the, the one that worries me, um, well, it doesn't worry me, but I see as the, uh, the real challenge is being very clear, being much more precise and organised about setting goals for people, monitoring progress, coaching progress, and and managing uh, results. You know, what, what's one thing that's become very clear to me as a result of COVID-19 is a lot of people who are coming to work, their output was they came to work. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, right. You know, they must be producing output because they're here today between nine and five. And I think what COVID-19 has done, this, this, this change has done, it's through no fault of the people, like we're the ones who designed the jobs and gave them. For a lot of people, there's not a lot of output. So it's going to cause us to review a, a lot of our positions, whether they're still warranted or whether they can be shared or, 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 or justified. And, you know, I think that's healthy for the company um, and it's healthy for the people because nobody really wants – I suspect in all companies there's a lot of people, of course, COVID-19, sitting at home today who really don't have a lot to do because they're not coming in the office uh, anymore. They're not spending two hours on the bus or train even – so I think you know how we how we ensure that you know people have um, fulsome uh, employment, meaningful work, clarity about what's expected of them, and support for delivering the results. Um, you know I think they become even more important in this world. If I'm starting out in my career, why do I go to NIB as opposed to others? Um, that's a good question. Um, I, I think brand's important. I think brand's important with consumers, non-executive directors, regulators, um, uh, leaders, and, and staff. So I, I like to think we have we, we have some level of brand appeal, as sexy as you can be as a health insurance app. We have maybe we're at the upper end. The the design of our our recruitment process is is important. It has to be sexy. Yep. It can't be old fashioned. So what's that look like? What's sexy about your recruitment process? Oh, look, I suppose we're doing nothing. That's just the way we articulate you know, what we're doing at NIB and what it means to be as part of NIB on LinkedIn and and, and, and other platforms. You know, I'm not saying we're cutting edge on that, but I I think we're probably at you know the upper, the top cordial in terms of the way we present ourselves to the world. Of course, the uh, normal benefits. And I think most importantly... Look, I don't want to overstate it, but we are trying to become, because everyone likes to say this, I know, but we are trying to be a technology company. Well, you've got to be. Yeah, the future of healthcare, as in so many yeah. other industries around uh, technology. So, you know, we've just recruited a guy from Cigna uh, out of Florida as part of our, you know, our vision around um, data science and uh, data-driven healthcare. To come and work for us because okay we're not Amazon or we're not Apple but you know what we're doing within the healthcare sector is you know 
pretty sexy and interesting and you know has has enormous potential to change people's lives so that vision that strategy we're taking uh is hopefully you know attractive um you know to to those who um see you know who have interest and see opportunity around technology in their career how long you been ceo for i think 19 years in october okay so that puts that puts you up as the one what one of the longest serving ceos in the country yeah, but I'm still very immature. No, I know what I was going to ask you next is how do you stay on top of the game and also how do you make yourself – because, you know, some people lose ideas after a period of time, you know, five, seven years, they've done their dash. Eight, 19 years, you just said, right? How, how, how do you know you're still on top of the game? Yeah, I, I don't know. Look, I've known quite a few CEOs in my time have come and gone, and I don't know if it's because, Greg, they've done their dash – I just think there's this mindset that's evolved in recent years through corporate ranks that somehow you have a use-by date after mm. six or seven years. I think it's a little bit stupid, to be uh, honest. You know, there are lot, lots of men and women who are just building after six or seven years. You know, they've done the hard work in terms of transformation, restructuring. They've now got their agenda in place, the right people on the bus, the you know the capital investments in place. And then the board decides, oh, you know, investors will look down at us. You know, if we have a CEO for longer than six or seven years, I just think, and if we haven't had, have a succession plan in, in place, which means, you know, Johnny's has to replace Mary after seven years because that's our succession plan. You know, I think there's a lot of nonsense um, occurring on, on 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 that front, but maybe that's just me making um, excuses for myself. But to, to your question, look, I'm 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 as um, energised and as interested in the industry and and its shape in the next five, ten, and twenty years as I was twenty years uh, ago. You know, I still bounce out of bed every day, keep fit. Look, I work differently perhaps than what I did uh, twenty years ago. Um, not because of a lack. The energy I had then, but but just because you know, I, I'm probably even more out thinking about strategy and getting less involved in working in the business rather than uh, on the business. So, yeah. but you know, equally I recognise this, and the board know this. But I, I see succession planning for my own role as one of my important tasks from here. You know, I don't. You know, one of my legacies will be I left in place. You know, good leadership and uh, and a company in good shape. But yeah, you know, I, I I don't I, I never think to myself, gee, Mark, you've been here uh, uh, too long. Well, it sounds like too exciting a time to be to walk away, doesn't it? Well, it is, and maybe this is maybe this is the final chapter. Um, you know, this whole this whole notion about truly converting the company away, well, not away from, but building the company into a genuine healthcare company rather than you know what I locally described as a sick care company. What's your time limit on achieving that? Three to four years probably, wow. Greg. Or like, yeah, you that's... just never. It's, 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 it's so hard to predict these things. And uh, again, you know, I, I waxed lyrical a little bit earlier, and it, sorry if I sounded a bit academic about this, 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 you know, this management question about economic determinism or strategic choice, uh, the coin expressions. And so I'm very much a p- person that, look, you have to have, you know, you have to have some, you have to have multiple views about the future, both in business and your own personal life, life. but you have to be able to adapt to whatever. And so if in five years' time, some new opportunity comes along and uh, there's a reason to, to stay, 
uh, and it's exciting and rewarding, that's what I'll do. But on the other hand, if um, I've got to have a property up the valley, if I'd rather, you know, breed Angus bulls and that sounds more exciting, I might do, might do that. But certainly what we're doing at the moment is going to, uh, unless, you know, something were to go awry, yep. we'll you know, keep me occupied for probably four or five years. And if I was going to uh, look up Mark Fitzgibbon after listening to this podcast, I'm going to come across uh, his Instagram. Fridays with Fitz. Yeah, come on, that's that's interesting. What's what what's the uh, genesis behind that? <laughs> and you and you seem to cover all topics. Okay, so quick quick story. I'm sitting around on a Saturday night having dinner two years ago now because that's how long I've been doing Fridays yeah. with Fitz. I think there's a couple hundred of episodes. And my children, who, by the way, have been very well educated, were lamenting the fact that Malcolm Turnbull had just been tipped out of the job and the guy they voted for. I said, guys, seriously, I said, none of you voted for Malcolm Turnbull. I said, Malcolm Turnbull was appointed by the Queen on the advice of the Governor-General, on the advice of the Parliament, who was controlled by the, the... political party with the majority of, of seats. You didn't vote. And they, they were adamant. And their friends were there that they voted for Mountain Turnbull. No, he's thought, not, he's not, he's not the president. Here. He's not the president. <laughs> so I, I so podcast I do every Friday called Fridays with Fitz. It goes for a minute. And I select some political or economic or business or social uh, topic, um, which I talk for a minute about and offer an opinion because you only get a minute on on Instagram, and um, yeah, that's hard work. But it's come quite popular. I think I have a thousand followers. Oh yeah, I saw you. I saw your uh, your advice around the U.S. election. You're spot on giving that prediction. Yes, I was, well, I said Biden would win easily, and people were poo hiring me on the night of the election. I said, well, you just just hold your horses and wait and see. And um, but look, I think it's you know. Are you getting good Again. feedback? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, you know, I've band of followers and, and likes, and I'm generally, you know, the feedback's good. I take a very judicious approach to most, um, you know, issues. So, for example, in Australia Day, I talk about the history of settlement in Australia and the fact that it actually was an invasion. It was an invasion. Um, and that we need to change. It doesn't mean we don't, we don't have an Australia Day and we celebrate being uh, one community, but we need to change state because it's offensive to a large part of our community. It's just as, as simple as that. So, I, you know, I, I try and tackle in a in a balanced and, and, and fair way, you know, some of the social issues that, um, you know, we, older folk, I should speak for myself, you know, we have an obligation, you know, we've been on this planet hopefully a little bit wiser than our, our, our children to, to share our thoughts, even when we're wrong. Well, I've got you on a roll then. What are your thoughts in regards to the... Um I guess, the political debate in this country. And if you're going to make a prediction, are we going to see an election around August, September this year? Yeah, I think most likely. Uh, September or, or October, um, you know, the government appears to have some momentum, some momentum so, and they're generally regarded as having done a good job, particularly through uh, COVID-19. So I'll be very surprised if we don't have an election uh, this year. Okay, and have a good government. We need a good opposition. We do, but I think I think we have a good opposition. Do you? You know, I have a brother in politics. This is probably where you're going with no, this. No, no, no. I'm just no, I'm no. not going there. I'm just uh, in general. Do you think we've got a good opposition, and do you think we've got good government? I do. I, I think as a country, we have we we, we have a good government and and uh, a talented uh, opposition, 
and you know I think you know a level of you know you'll never get bipartisanship on um, you know every issue. We don't expect that. That's why we call them oppositions. Um, but I think through COVID nineteen, you know we've we've seen that when you know you know the going gets tough, we we can we can operate as a you know. As, as a single unit with the level of bipartisanship. So, and look, you know, for the opposition, that's probably worked against them uh, by doing the right thing, yep. uh, yeah, uh, yeah. so to speak, because, you know, government, you know, winning government is as much about opposing as proposing. So we'll, we'll, we'll see. Look, I'm, I'm fairly um, indifferent to, you know, whoever is in government. Uh, you know, I'd like to think maybe naively uh, that good policy is, is 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 good policy, but it's up to us as business leaders to be able to help them form that policy and articulate the policy. You know, I learned a long time ago as a lobbyist and in council that there's no use bringing a problem to a politician without a solution. You need to say, Minister, we have a big problem here, but you can't just leave it there. You got to say, Minister, we have a big problem here, and we think, or I think, this, this is the way we approach it. Now they may not agree with that approach. But at least you're on the front foot, you know. You're proposing ideas rather than just simply dumping a problem in the in the uh, lap of the of the government of the day. And do you think the, our business leaders get engaged enough in, in that regard with you know the political discourse? Look, I I, th- I think they I think they are, and I think on okay. both sides, you know, I, I you know I attend business functions on both with yeah. both you know major uh, uh, parties. Um, so yeah, I, I think they are. I, I, I think they 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 have a go. Uh, there will always be philosophical, um, you know, differences. Um, you know, the, my, my thinking, for example, on on turning to the private sector to deliver many of the government's healthcare programs. Yeah. There are people within, you know, certainly within the Labor Party who see that as, you know, the first nail in the coffin of Medicare. They shouldn't. It's, it's not the privatisation of healthcare. It's just turning to the private sector to deliver the, you know, the, the products and, and and services. So, you know, there will always be some philosophical opposition, which is just insurmountable. Yeah. Um, but you've got to keep plugging away. But, yeah, but how are you going to keep plugging away on three-year terms, Mark? When the governments don't stick around long enough, quite often, to one take your points on view. When you've got to win them over, hearts and minds, etc. Then we're going to implement it. They're gone in three years. Well, we've had three-year terms for a long time now, Greg. Yeah, but is and it, I like, is it, is and it I like to think as a, uh, as, uh, as a country, um, as a lucky country, we've made you know tremendous progress over the past you know hundred years uh, and more. So, look, you know, as, as as Churchill once said, you know, it's probably the worst system except for all the rest. So, look, I'm still the optimist, and look, we probably exaggerate government's role. Uh, in, yeah, in all of this, it's really up to leaders, be they business or community or social leaders, to yeah. get out there, create the ideas, um, and help government form the policy necessary to to execute uh, those ideas. Role of sport in your life? How important is it? Oh, I am a I'm, you know I'm a, I like my sport. You know, I like my. My, my rugby league, to a lesser extent, you know, rugby and AFL and and and, and, and cricket. Um, you know, all my kids have been very sporty. My son plays for the Newcastle Knights. You know, I'm very proud of 
you know, his achievement. So, yeah, I get as nervous for a game as as as, as he probably does. Um, so, yeah. So, no, sport's important. Physical health is really important to me. I think, you know, I'm often saying to, you know, people I influence or coach or mentor, call it what you will, that it's important that they stay fit and healthy. It's good for your um, psychological health. And your stress reliever? Is it the uh, the one? Uh, yeah, the, no, the, it's, the, it's, the, it's uh, sport the one beer and exercises. No, what about the uh, the one beer, the one beer or one glass of wine a day? Oh yeah, my dad used to say, you know, you need a little bit of Christmas in every day. So I I, I, I treat myself, and I think as you get older, I think you recognise that that every day is um, valuable, and um, you can treat yourself, and you shouldn't feel guilty about that. Um, um, but I have Mondays off. Okay, fair and I probably have I probably have more than one on a Friday and Saturday too. But but okay. uh, honestly, three beers today um, completely pulls me up. Two last questions: If you're going to give one message out to all the young people out there, real simple question to you, Mark: Why should I take up health insurance? Health insurance, I often say to people, yeah, 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 you don't need it until you do. And so it's a form of security um, against the risk of. Uh, uh, disease and uh, sickness, you will get, and this is, you know, I've been careful here because, you know, I don't want to create the specter of a two-haired healthcare system, but you'd expect me to say you will get more prompt, more choice, and I think better care within the, within the private um, system. So if you have the means, it's something which is, 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 is highly valuable in terms of your, um, you know, personal and financial uh, security. But what I want the future vision to be in a way I've described today is to be as much about if you become a member of NIB, you'll be healthier because we'll provide you with the products, services and support and insight and content, which devices, the connectivity to you know IoT devices and symptom checkers and other um, wonderful technologies which are emerging will connect you with those things in a way which will help you, you know, not only understand your risk profile, but better uh, manage that risk profile. And Mark, if you were to look back at that younger man building his career in Cessnock, what advice would you give him all these years later? I don't think there's anything I'd change, uh, Greg. Oh, there might be a few things in my personal life I'd, I'd change. I don't know what it's like for most others, but I, I really, I recognise I'll be dead for billions of years. And I re- every, mo- every day I, I enjoy, uh, I, I recognise that, you know, I've only got so many of these days. And I particularly, um, well, something my father used to say, which I share is always be able to laugh at yourself, yeah. which I suppose just another way of saying, you know, don't take life too seriously or yourself and keep things in perspective. You know, I often say to my kids, you know, well, when they're panicking over something, well, whose head's fallen off, which I think I've done reasonably well. But certainly I, as you get older, I think you have a greater sense of, you know, the beauty of life and the importance of every day to live it to its fullest, uh, the importance of, you know, seizing every day when opportunity comes and the importance of keeping things um, in perspective and the importance of being able to laugh at yourself and, you know, accept your flaws without, you know, getting too down about it or without it damaging your, your confidence about your ability to go forward. On that, Mark, really appreciate you making the time to join us today. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. You've been listening to No Limitations.